0: If I launched it on my own, it was gonna be me. And then maybe if I'm lucky in a couple of years, I'll get an employee because the research was showing that, yes, this was going to be important for higher ed, but in 2017, it was saying two to three years of education and advocacy is going to be needed for folks to be willing to make a purchase decision. And I didn't wanna do it as a side hustle for two to three years. And I didn't wanna not have a steady income. Also, I'd never started a business before.
1: Welcome to Starter Stories, a podcast that explores the stories behind the world's leading education technology companies and education consultancies and the people who created them. In each episode, you'll hear about the grit, the strategies, the wins, the failures, and the serendipity that transpired to take a half-baked idea and bring it to life. Starter Stories is a podcast of Enrollify, a learning community for enrollment managers and higher education marketers. Explore our other shows like Fanatical Fridays and CRM Prov or access creative ideas on how to better your student recruitment campaigns via our videos, blogs, and e-courses at enrollify.org. I'm your host, Zach Cruz. Enjoy the show. In just a moment, you will meet Dr. Liz Gross, founder and CEO of Campus Sonar, the first and only social listening agency dedicated to higher ed. If you were to ask Liz in high school what she wanted to be when she grew up, She would have probably said a youth pastor or a pastor's wife, but certainly not an entrepreneur. And yet, from an early age, Liz had an eye for opportunity. Liz's father was a builder, and every year the homes he built were featured in Wisconsin's Parade of Homes. One year, while she was still in grade school, Liz attended the event with her dad and noticed how long people had to wait in line before viewing one of the homes. I bet these people could use some lemonade, she thought. And her first enterprise was born. Liz is an award-winning speaker, author, and strategist and calls herself a higher ed lifer. She worked as a program outreach coordinator at the University of Wisconsin for several years before starting her career in social media at Ascendium, which was formerly Great Lakes Higher Education Corporation. This experience ultimately paved the way for Campus Sonar to be born. Tune in to hear the compelling story of how a senior in college who was about to become a staffer for the college ministry organization Campus Crusade for Christ made a last minute decision to do something entirely different and eventually became one of the most trustworthy voices in higher ed today. Welcome to the show, Liz. I'm really excited to have you here.
0: Thanks. Glad to be here.
1: So, Liz, I have followed you on social media for some time now and Know a little bit about the Campus Sonar story, um, but I've just really admired you all from a distance and um, have had a number of questions around who you all are, how you got started, who you are. You're so prolific on social media. It's like anytime I'm looking for like some inspiration or if, if I want to you know, level up my social game. I just, I follow you. I follow Steve. I say, okay, what are what are these folks doing? Um, what can I, what can I learn from how they're, how they're owning the social game that I might be able to replicate in some way, shape or form in, in my own work. So thank you for, uh, for the great work and the, and the great content that you all put out. It's certainly served as an inspiration to me and I'm sure many of our listeners as well.
0: Thanks. Prolific is a much nicer way to say it than oversharer or some of the (laughs) other ways I would describe it myself.
1: Oh, no, I love it. I love it. Well, we have a lot to talk about today. And what's super fun about this particular segment that we're doing here at Enrollify is it's really one of the few opportunities where we get to talk about you. We get to talk about uh, Campus Sonar. It's less focused on sort of thought leadership um, and general pontification about all things higher ed and social strategy and it's a little bit more of a a cool unique space to chat with some of the people that are at the helm of thinking differently about the industry and Campus Sonar definitely falls into that category as do you. So to get us started for folks who might not know who you are and might not know what Campus Sonar is I'd love to know what you think your friends would say if I were to sit down and, and grab a happy hour or a coffee with them, and I were to say, hey, talk to me about Liz Gross. Like, who is she? Uh, what does she care about? Um, what What do you imagine that they might say?
0: So I think first, they would probably talk about um, the way I spend my time because I'm a bit obsessive about some of my hobbies. So they'd say that I'm a foodie. I love cooking. I love thinking about the day we'll return to restaurants, but uh, we generally like base our travel plans around restaurants. My husband and I big into gardening. Um, Some people say I have a farm. It's not a farm. It's a garden. It's just (laughs) very, very large. Uh, But it's interesting because I think a lot of folks would say that, you know, I'm, I'm a bit, they would describe me as a techie. I don't think of myself as a techie, but they'd say I'm a techie that has a lot of like, homestead or country tendencies which is an interesting dichotomy that is i live i live in rural wisconsin i've got the big garden uh don't have broadband internet at my house
1: (laughs) that's impressive
0: (laughs) yeah so enough to zoom but that's about it these days Uh, just recently was able to start streaming netflix on our internet connection they'd also talk about traveling. I pre pandemic loved to travel. That is TBD after the pandemic, but hope to get back into it when th- places aren't so crowded. Cause I don't like traveling during the high season, but how I think, um, I think they would say that I give good advice. Uh, my friends do come to me for advice a lot. They would, this sounds really weird to talk about myself in this way. They'd That's also good. say that I'm smart. Uh, my, my friends do say that I'm smart. they, They think my brain works a little bit differently. I don't know how to describe that, but also that I work a lot. Mm. Uh, I'm obsessive about my hobbies. I'm also obsessive about my work. And surprisingly, a a couple of years into starting this business, I actually work less now than I used to, Uh, but I I go all in on things. My husband would tell you that I have a bit of an addictive personality in that way. When I want to learn how to do something or learn about something, I will read and watch all of the things to get to know how to do that.
1: Wow. Now <laughs> and that... that
0: carries into my work too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Hey, there, there are worse ways to spend your time. So there is that. Um, and, I, I want to circle back real quickly on what do you grow in your garden?
0: Oh my gosh. I, I literally have a spreadsheet for this year Wow. because there is a garden expansion for 2021 and I grow over a hundred different vegetables
1: unbelievable that's
0: plus a few flowers but mostly edible vegetables wow
1: that's that's incredible now are most of these in in pots I know little to nothing about gardening so are or is there just sort of this like expansive space in your backyard where all of these things grow in the ground or what sort of I have 2,000
0: square feet of in-ground garden space that I just killed it last weekend it's just a big expanse of dirt that I'm going to turn into rows and uh, grow most of my food for the year.
1: (laughs) Wow. That is so impressive. Ah, that's, that's goals right there. Um, yeah, we, uh, my wife and I live in, uh, well, in, in normal times, we live in the heart of Washington, D.C., so garden space is a little bit harder to to come by. But, um, hey, if we ever move out to the country, I might be giving you a call and, and asking for some advice.
0: <laughs> we started in pots in an apartment balcony, so you can start small.
1: Okay, okay. Good to know. Good to know. Well, um, As much as I would love to talk about gardening all day, we are here to talk a little bit more about what you spend uh, most of your time doing, which is uh, at the helm of Campus Sonar. For folks who aren't familiar with Campus Sonar, can you just sort of give us the quick elevator pitch, kind of a Cliff's Notes overview of what Campus Sonar is and uh, the kinds of clients that you serve?
0: Absolutely. So Campus Sonar is a specialized social listening agency for higher education. And we help colleges and universities do a few things, measure their brand and reputation, understand and engage with key audiences, improve customer service, or manage crises. And the way we do that is by understanding understanding data, and most specifically, public online conversations. Hmm which we collect and analyze through the process of social listening. So we say we are higher ed enthusiasts and social listening nerds. And we tend to work with the marketing communications office, the admissions office, or the advancement office, or a combination of those, particularly if we're working with a smaller campus.
1: Makes a lot of sense. And for folks like me who have heard of social listening, who think that they understand. It's some sort of monitoring of what people are, how people are talking about your brand online across social networks. What is, how do you guys describe what social listening actually is?
0: Right. So if you consider how much of our conversation is publicly accessible, we're thinking about Twitter and Reddit and Tumblr and online news sources, blogs, Uh, Instagram, some parts of Facebook. It's kind of locked that down. All of that is just, it's a publicly available archive of human thought. Mm. And social listening is looking at that archive as an always on focus group to learn more about a brand, a topic, or a certain group of people where you can kind of unobtrusively gather that archive of thought uh, historically or in real time and draw some insights from it. And we believe that we're using social listening to help organizations build trust with their audience. Because the more you understand an audience, the more you are likely to do things that are worthy of their trust. Hmm. So that's how we see our role in it. Uh, far beyond the idea of just you know managing your mentions and your DMs on yeah. social. It's a lot of what people are saying about you, not to you
1: how I'm curious how much um and again, I don't know what how much you can share or reveal here, but in terms of the insights that you all are providing to clients like how how much influence do these insights have over the branding campaign that they launch next, or how they think about updating calm flows or you know their tone on like is it mostly sort of like a brand play of like hey here's what people fyi here's what people are saying about you here's what you're saying about yourself herein lies sort of the disconnect or can you just walk us really quickly through how a school would engage with you all um beyond sort of being made aware of what the conversation is how do you guys help them understand what to do with that information
0: Right, it varies from campus to campus. So that is one thing that I'm proud of that makes us different than any sort of software is we are customizing our approach to the needs of the client. So I'm thinking of two or three different examples that would really illustrate this well. One of the first clients we ever worked with, they really wanted to do brand research but they could not afford your typical quant and qual longitudinal brand study. They could, however, afford to work with us on a limited basis to do some historical social listening. Hmm. And with them, what they wanted to know was what organically surfaces as topics and themes that are talked about when you talk about our institution. And I can name them. Their case studies on our website. This was work we did with Spring Hill College way back in 2017 when we launched. Uh, We looked at their conversation over the course of three years, and we were also looking at other institutions' conversation at that time. So not only could we see what was bubbling up in conversation as themes, but we would know if it was unique Hmm. to them, as opposed to how people just talk about higher ed in general. And for them, this concept of family kept coming up. It was the word family. It was familial terms like mother, daughter, sister, brother. And when we dove in, we found that not only were a lot of people unpromptedly referring to the SHC family, but they themselves were using the term like unofficially, hmm. not realizing it was something that they were talking about. And that actually became a brand campaign for them. It, it The SHC family became a hashtag that they were using. It showed up in radio spots. It showed up in um, on-campus, you know, Marketing, you know, wall wraps, things like that. And that all came out of just what are people saying about us lately? Wow. In other instances, we'll come in after the fact where someone has spent the time to do brand research, develop their new brand platform, their pillars, and they've deployed a new brand. And the marketing leader wants to so- show some sort of proof that they are moving the public perception sure. of that institution in a different way. So what we'll do then is we'll gather all of that conversation, You know, maybe the first year of the brand launch, we've even done it like within the first six months, although a year or a little bit more is better. And we'll look at that as a qualitative researcher and say, well, these were your three brand attributes that you are trying to move the conversation towards. How much of the conversation, both from your institution and about your institution is aligned with those brand attributes is that increasing over time are you doing enough on your end communicating on brand yeah or do you need to sort of bring some folks align and that's not just Using the right logo, <laughs> are you talking about yourself in the way that aligns with this brand story you 've constructed so those are two ways it works with brand we 've got other folks who are much more focused on en- enrollment marketing, sure, so we might be looking at how are students talking about your institution as admissions decisions come out? what competitors are they talking about? what are they saying is going to Uh, prompt their their decision of whether to enroll or not? What impact could this have on how you deal with your wait list that you've built up? Hmm. So there's also some very tactical things that could be done in addition to finding that needle in the haystack of here is a student who just needs to know, you know, how they will be treated as an LGBT student in the law school. And they've asked Reddit, do you have a student ambassador who could go and jump into that Reddit post and talk to them? So it's everything from high-level strategy to tactical one-to-one opportunities.
1: Wow. It sounds like an incredible amount of work, um, but work that is very, very important. Uh, um, and yeah, I, I have several follow-up questions that I think will be answered as we progress through our conversation. But before we talk a little bit more about campus sonar and sort of the the origin story of campus sonar i do want to talk a little bit more about you um i'm curious in high school uh what did you want to be when you grew up did you ha- was it pretty clear from day one what you wanted to do or how did you think about what kind of career or profession that you would have back in back in high school
0: high school liz was very different from current day liz
1: oh interesting how so how so
0: Uh, if I think about what I wanted to be when I was in high school, I think it was probably a youth pastor or a pastor's wife. And that is not who I am now.
1: (laughs) Fascinating. Uh, Oh, I like it. I didn't
0: have. I didn't have career ambitions really. Um, you know, I enjoyed working with people. I did a lot of volunteering. My parents said that I should be a lawyer because I was very good at arguing. (laughs) So I, I didn't have a plan. Uh, I, I didn't have career ambitions, but I did figure I would work. One thing that was never on the table was being a stay at home mom. That is, um, Staying home and networking and being a mom are two things that are not in my future, and I knew that <laughs> in high school
1: yeah yeah so so that's interesting um so you right as somebody who is an entrepreneur who is leading this really cool uh uh innovative company how at, at what point sort of did you get the entrepreneurial bug like was it did did you have ideas of oh i maybe you weren't set on a particular profession but you wanted to pursue creative pursuits like would you have described yourself as a as a creative person or at what point in time did you were you were you sort of bit by this ambition to to do something as crazy as help start and grow a startup
0: yeah i spent a lot of time thinking about this over the last few years because it certainly wasn't something that was top of mind for me ever, but there are kind of bits and pieces throughout, you know, growing up and then working that make a lot of sense. Um, I can trace some elements of being an entrepreneur to fairly early. So my dad owned his own business. He was a second generation, general contractor he built houses so you know growing up my mom went to work in an office she probably had the health insurance is my guess and my father built a few homes every year and would bring people after dinner home to the kitchen table to go over floor plans and things like that i helped him make his business cards when we got our first word processing computer um and i i I wanted to do things my own way at that point what really stands out to me when i was a kid is because my dad built houses, he would have houses in the parade of homes every year. Wow. And I would look at this and I'd be like, look at all of these people going through these houses and they have to check in at the garage and you know, get their card stamped. What if I sold them lemonade? <laughs> And I started, I started a lemonade stand. I made a decent amount of money. Uh, by about the third year, I was getting used to this. Like we would also like cookies, and I had a lemonade and cookie stand that was doing so much in terms of little kid cash flow that my mom made me t- start taking a record of the receipts from the grocery store so I could pay her back for supplies. Because <laughs> <And, laughs> we would, I would sell. Yeah, I would sell for like ten hours a day. Come Home, bake cookies. We were buying like the massive size of lemonade and like five gallon coolers. And in the course of a weekend, after paying my mom for expenses, although she gave me the baking labor for free, I had close to three hundred bucks. And for like ten year old Liz, that was pretty cool. But that's I'm like okay, I I understood it a little bit at that point. But I never from there on was like I'm going to start my own business. I really resonate with the idea of the, the term intrapreneur, somebody who pursues innovation within a larger organization. And I do have a history of taking jobs where I'm either the first person to have it or it's a job that's just been reimagined or I take a job and then I end up creating a different job for myself within that same organization. I've done that multiple times. And starting Campus Sonar was very Intrapreneurial. I, I didn't go out and quit my job to start a new job. I just turned my job into starting a new agency, which was pretty unique, and felt right to me.
1: Yeah, and I I can't wait to we're gonna we're gonna tap into that in in a second here and uncover some more of the the story behind that and i i love this idea of um you categorizing yourself as somebody who has enjoyed playing in the entrepreneur space because it's not something that i feel like it's, it's talked about that much and i think that that actually um is is something that could be attractive to a fair number of people who are worried or for whatever reason they're not particularly interested in like totally going off on their own and building from zero to one in you know their parents' basement um, but might want to be able to flex their creative muscles and um, might see trends and opportunities in the market or in their industry that they feel this calling to tackle and i love I love talking with people that are able to Uh, artfully find a way to still develop something that is new within the context of an environment that is actually probably a little bit more conducive to enabling that idea to see the light of day um, than if you are really acting as judge, jury, and executioner on your own in a silo. So more on that in a second, but you touched on this a little bit. I'm curious how success was talked about at home. Was Growing up, was it a foregone conclusion that you would go to college? How was higher education perceived? uh, How did you perceive, I guess, your family's perception of higher education while growing up?
0: Yeah, for us in our house, success was just stability that you know you're able to pay your bills uh have a roof over your head hopefully go on a vacation at some point in time but my parents didn't go to college uh, my dad you know worked he he did a variety of things and as he's gotten older he started telling us more about like the teen and 20s years and what that meant uh, he gave college a shot for a semester but he wasn't invited back <laughs> um, <laughs> He then went eventually, you know, went into the army and then uh, went into the family business. So he was running his own business for the vast majority of his working life. And my mom was one of those folks who started at a company when she was 18 after she graduated high school and worked for that company in her case till she was eligible for some early retirement because they had a buyout. So they each, you know, they took some classes here and there, uh, but neither of them have a degree. They did, however, save for my college education and my younger brother's college education. And we grew up in the 80s and 90s when it was realistic to do that (laughs) without taking out student loans. But I didn't because I was a first generation college student and I went to a a high school with a graduating class of 500, I didn't have college advising. Uh, There was no pre-college track for me. I didn't do a traditional college search. I didn't take any honors courses or AP classes. I took the ACT like in October of my senior year or something like that. And I almost didn't apply to college uh, because the guy I was dating didn't wanna go to college. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But I ended up applying around February to the closest four-year public institution to my house. It was super affordable. Um, I could live on campus without having to stay at home, but be close enough to go home and do laundry And, and ended up being a really good fit for me. But nothing about my college search or my choice of major where I went to school was intentional at all. I knew it was open to me, but I didn't have anyone kind of guiding me down that path.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What did you study in school?
0: I ended up with a communication major with an emphasis on interpersonal communication, which everyone was like, what the heck does that mean? And it's what I do every day now. So it makes a lot of sense. I was briefly a business major, and I dropped my business major when I realized I didn't, I thought I didn't like business. (laughs) I did an (laughs) internship uh in washington dc with a lobbying firm and i saw these people that were like literally sleeping in their offices working like crazy and i had it in my head that that's what business was yeah and then i looked at my schedule and i saw that my next semester was statistics and i also had it in my head that i wasn't good with statistics so both of these things are wrong but i dropped my business major (laughs) just majored in communication and got out in four years
1: we'll jump right back into the show after a quick message from this week's sponsor This episode is brought to you by our friends at Mongoose. Mongoose is dedicated to being a bridge for higher education between schools and constituents. With a focus on conversational marketing software, Mongoose takes great pride in offering both the knowledge and the tools to help higher ed engage, motivate, and grow individuals and communities. They've got two exceptional products that help Folks do just that. The first one is Cadence, higher education's premier texting platform. Mongoose Cadence allows staff to efficiently reach students in their preferred daily communication channel, which is texting. Whether sending a message to a single student or a large list, the platform facilitates timely, meaningful conversations that inspire action. Harmony. Mongoose Harmony is an intelligent chatbot that effortlessly guides visitors to the right content, captures lead information, and simultaneously updates any systems integrated with that chatbot, and routes visitors to the appropriate staff when a human is needed. Students and alumni visit a school's website because they want quick information. Conversational marketing through chatbots allows you to efficiently answer questions and keep constituents engaged at the peak of their interest in your institution. To learn more about Mongoose offerings, head on over to mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. And, fun fact, you'll be able to engage with a chatbot on that page. Again, it's mongooseresearch.com forward slash enrollify. I'm curious when you were in school or was social media just starting to come about like what were what were the social networks or i guess maybe even a better way of of, uh phrasing this question is how were folks interacting with the internet while you were in college like what what were people using to communicate to uh share ideas with each other while you were in school
0: we had MySpace profiles uh, and we had like GeoCities and Angel Fire websites um, and your campus email account. But it really, we were not communicating with each other online. For me anyway, my MySpace profile was how I kept in touch with some people from high school. Um, and everything else was like, we would pick up the phone and call people. So yeah. I'm right on the cusp where I am technically a millennial but I fall into that zennial group. Um, I think emails were still like within the first five years when we got to our campus. Um, I did have internet in high school dial up. I was on our local BBS where you had to dial in and like text chat with strangers in the late nineties, but Facebook launched uh, my senior year of college. So social networking, wasn't like I think maybe people were on Friendster, uh, but it was not a thing that we did. And the only way to keep in touch with people was to email them or call them. I didn't even have I didn't even have a cell phone until my senior year of college.
1: Wow! Wow! Okay. And now here you are, sort of working at this super cool company where all you do is not all you do, but a large amount of what you do is monitor social media conversations um, and conversations around the internet. It's it's yeah. funny what uh what a few years will do. Um, but I'd love to, to hear a little bit more about your time right after college. So if your LinkedIn profile is up to date, you spent some time at the national communication association for about a year, and then you were actually a program outreach coordinator at the university of Wisconsin's Milwaukee campus. And I'm curious in these first couple of jobs right after school, what were some lessons that you learned? It sounds like you like hard work and, um, being motivated was a part of your family context your dad working the way that he worked your mom sticking with the same job for for decades so this idea of hard work loyalty and commitment probably wasn't foreign to you but what were some lessons that you learned in your first job postings as as a young professional that have stuck with you to this day
0: yeah Well, one thing I think about is even how I ended up with that first job. So I moved from central Wisconsin to Washington, D.C. to work at the National Communication Association. And it was wild because I only did a phone screen with them and then they invited me to move out. So I did because I had.
1: Sorry, I was going to say D.C. is a little little bit different. Yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but i had spent a summer out there as a college intern so i i knew what i was getting into moving into dc i didn't i didn't realize the rent uh but i <laughs> i knew what i was I'm getting sorry. into as far as the city but i got that job because of my um my most common college professor who was also my faculty advisor she was the also the advisor of the um communication Honor Society that I was a member of, and NCA posted a job for somebody to essentially run the honor society and I had completely thrown my plans away uh, for graduation, like the week of graduation. I had huh. a plan I knew what I was going to do i I had a position lined up, and I decided the week that I graduated that i didn't want to do it
1: what if, uh, you, if you don't mind what what was the plan what was what was your position?
0: I was going to be a full-time staffer with Campus Crusade for Christ.
1: Wow. Okay. Okay.
0: And uh, it was an interesting role. Um, yeah. I don't know if anyone listening knows anything about that, but if you are, I think it's probably still the same. If you're a full-time staffer, they would have called you an intern, but it was full-time. Uh, you have to raise your own salary. Yeah. yeah. So I was in the process of raising my salary. I had already gotten some commitments and I had a conversation where I le- realized that there were going to be rules put upon me as a staff member that I thought were arbitrary hmm. and not rooted in reality or dogma, really. And I quit <laughs> the week I graduated.
1: Wow. So you, had so, a, you have uh, everything lined up. You've spent all you've spent a fair amount of time. Had a lease fundraising. Signed. You had a lease signed. And then you decide right before you graduate that, nope, I'm going to go pursue path B but i don't know what path b is
0: yeah well there was no other path yeah so like you can't tell me what to do uh so i quit and i i went and you know moved in with my roommate that i had signed a lease for and i i went and worked with the temp agency. So I just worked different jobs all summer. Uh, A couple of them offered to hire me full time at the exciting rate of like eight to $10 an hour. And I said, I wasn't interested, Uh, but I kept in touch with my, my professor and told her, you know, my plans have changed, I need a job. And when NCA announced that they were hiring, she emailed it to me and said, you should apply. So I applied, I used her as a reference and she was involved in NCA. And I believe that I got the interview because of her. So getting back to your question, one of the things I learned is that the people you know and your network really matters. Mm. I probably would be working a very different type of job in central Wisconsin still, if uh, Dr. Sprague hadn't helped me get that job with NCA. But then I came back and worked at UW-Milwaukee for five and a half years. And in both of these roles, A couple of things. I've learned that I could do things that I'd never done before and I could do them well. Hmm. At, At NCA, I had to do a lot of graphic design. And I had a minor in what at the time was called technology and new media arts, which was like you take one class on Photoshop, you take one class on web design. And then they wanted me to be a graphic designer, <laughs> and I I was good enough uh, to do it. I learned a lot of mistakes. the first The first time I sent something to print, I learned everything I did wrong. Um, but I I could do a lot of things I'd never done before, and it was the same thing at UW Milwaukee. Um, I joined the team. And then within a year, I was in charge of moving for 2,700 people. Uh, I had to supervise a team of seven in like my second year out of college. And I was always able to do the things I'd never done before. I didn't do them perfect the first time, but I could do it. Um, I learned in both those jobs that how important it is to learn from people who are different from you.
1: Hmm.
0: Some of my closest colleagues in those roles had very, very different backgrounds to me whether that's because we were from a different race or a different generation or a different socioeconomic status growing up, uh, different gender identity or sexual orientation, I was surrounded by a lot of different in both of those jobs and I learned a lot from all of those people both professionally and personally. Uh, the big thing I take away with me from UW Milwaukee, which you know that's a large organization is but there were about 30,000 students on campus then thousands and thousands of staff members. And I was at the bottom of that professional ladder.
1: Sure. <laughs> yeah. Very,
0: very, very entry level. And I had no idea how universities worked, even though I was I was getting my master's degree in educational administration at that point in time. And when I look back on that time, I learned not to make assumptions. <laughs> I thought as a 24, 25 year old, like you're making this decision, you are making this announcement, I clearly understand everything that was behind it and it is wrong and I'm going to tell you why it is wrong. And I put my foot in my mouth so many times those first couple of years at UW-Milwaukee. And looking back, I was like, wow, was I was I, I dumb? I'm gonna say, it. was I dumb? Uh, I I made so many assumptions about what was going on around me, what information I was privy to, what people's motivations were. I, I let that story get built in my head. Hmm. And I believed it, even though it had very little reality behind it. And that's something I think back to a lot. Uh, two other things I learned, one for sure, it was public speaking, hmm. incredible skill to have, and that it comes with practice. So at NCA. I had to, like, lead panels up on stage at national conferences. I was 22. (laughs) I was just like, I guess I'll convene this meeting of the entire Honor Society (laughs) across the country. It it was fine. But at UW-Milwaukee specifically, I gave the um, housing talk for parents at New Freshman Orientation. And the way Milwaukee did New Freshman Orientation, it was multiple sessions, Within this orientation day, and there were dozens of orientation days throughout the summer, so I gave the same talk between thirty and sixty times every summer.
1: Talk about practice makes perfect. There, <laughs> it got right to there. the point
0: where, of course, yes, it got to the point where, of course, I didn't need notes, where I could actually start to interact with the audience and feed off of them. And now, you know, I don't give the same talk that many times. I'm usually changing things up, but I used to get nervous before public speaking, and I don't for the most part anymore. And that is because I have probably given 250 talks, at least,
1: yeah. during yeah. my life. Wow, so I'm oh, sorry, it, go it's ahead, some, go ahead.
0: As I say, sometimes people think that like to get public speaking experience, you have to be like, quote unquote, a speaker who is hired to come up on stage and give some magic talk. But I got all of my speaking experience through my job that just had it built in.
1: What's, what strikes me about everything that you just shared, if I can even attempt to distill it down a little bit, it, it sounds like two things in particular you've been really good at doing throughout, especially in those in those early years that have kind of carried you through to, to where you are today. One of it is really leaning into opportunity and leaning into, it sounds like, the way that you described yourself, of of uh, in those early years, of having strong opinions, want not necessarily being aware of all the context that you were not privy to, and trying to understand how universities function and how uh, admissions teams and marketing teams and other teams within universities make decisions, it it, it sounds like. Um, if you had those strong feelings, you must have really cared. You must have been—you must have been like eager to try and figure this out, or to uh, solve for a particular problem or an issue, or attempt to uh, overcome some some point of friction to make, create a better experience for prospective students or current students. And you know, I'm always I'm always inspired by people who who are a little bit tough and who challenge conventional thinking because more more often than not, that comes from a deep place of caring. Um, and caring for delivering a better experience, caring for being more accessible to to students or whatever the constituency might be, and then two, it sounds like you have done a really really good job at figuring out ways that you can work within your existing role to to better yourself professionally. So like, what are things that you can do? Get like the the, the orientation talk is a great example of this. That. There's one way to look at it this which is okay, I'm gonna give this talk i I have to do this this is part of my job, and I'm just gonna grunt it and get it done and it there's another way of looking at it, which is hey, this is going to help me grow as a professional to overcome this natural fear that many people have so that I can do bigger and better things uh one day and so it, it's neat to me to kind of hear you talk about how. Passion seems like it's always been a big part of what you do and, and, and how you work, but then also, again, this this deep uh, um, willingness to lean in uh, and to lean into opportunities, to lean into challenges, and then make it your own. Like I, I like how, you, how you've talked uh, for, for in, in a couple of examples at this point about really taking something and, and trying to make it your own and trying to do it in a way that that is genuinely different. So um, I love that. Thanks for, thanks for sharing all of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I really, I think to your point about being passionate about things, I had to learn how to smooth out the rough edges (laughs) of Mm. what comes out from that. Like make, I don't want to, it's essentially like making what I'm passionate about palatable for the people who can actually help me make that change. And then the other thing that's been fun and this carries into Campus Sonar is when I'm, when I'm learning to do something new, I will usually ask for some help with it. So I'm thinking specifically about that orientation talk. I had a colleague, Toby, who still works at UW-Milwaukee in a different office now, and he'd done orientation for a while. He figured out like, okay, Liz is gonna be the housing talk girl for a while now. And he came up to me and he said, "Um, you know, your talk is great, but there are some things you could be doing better. Would you like my help? And I said, yes. And he would stand in the back of the room and watch me give the same talk Every stinking week and then start to give me feedback. And sometimes it was direct feedback. Like we had a hand signal system where if (laughs) I was talking too fast or if I was doing certain things, he would stand in the back and help me out. But afterwards, he would even help me figure out my verbal ticks. What was I doing that was potentially uh, turning people off or distracting from my message? And he would tell me things that a supervisor probably couldn't have told me because I might have taken it the wrong way. Uh, but he helped me do that. And then after three semester or three summers, three or four summers, I got to start hiring student employees who I could teach to give the talk, which was a whole other experience. And that was great because it also set it up so that I felt okay leaving.
1: Yeah. Yeah. After
0: a while, I'm like, this is my talk. No one else can give this talk, which was dumb. But if I could train up a team of people who knew how to do it and knew how to teach others, then I could move on
1: and that's you know case in point what a good leader at a startup needs to be able to do in order to scale right you've got to find ways to to empower other people to do the things that you had previously done and enable them to you know do them as good as you would have done if not if not better than uh than you would have done and i think that that's that's an indicator about whether or not in in many contexts, a startup succeeds or fails is how how great of a job does the leader do at delegating and empowering, and I, that's super 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 hard for for any founder. Um, and I I, I, w- I want your thoughts on that momentarily. But I so you moved to Great Lakes and you moved to Great Lakes right after being at University of Wisconsin Milwaukee for a few years. And I believe you, your initial role there was as a marketing insights manager. Um, and at least again, that's what your, your LinkedIn profile said. So what was that initial role? Like what attracted you to, to that opportunity and talk to us about how that sort of inspired, uh, or was maybe sort of the, the initial, uh, spark that eventually would become, would become campus sonar.
0: Yeah. So between Milwaukee and Great Lakes, I was at another UW campus, which was UW Waukesha, and there I was the head of marketing communications. But it was a tiny, tiny campus, okay. so that was like a staff of two and a half people. Um, and I took I took the job at UW Waukesha because social media was a bullet point in the job description. It was huh. the first director that I'd ever seen that had that role, and I was I was there two years, and I started doing some work with Great Lakes on the side, um, someone had asked me to come give a conference presentation. One of my UW system colleagues had asked me to give a conference presentation at a financial aid conference about how they could use social media to communicate with students. I came, I gave that presentation. And someone from Great Lakes was there who had leadership authority over the training function of the student loan servicer that worked with financial aid offices. And they ended up hiring me as a contractor so 1099 side gig to do a couple of webinars for them for financial aid managers about how they could use social media to connect with students and uh, after doing a couple of those webinars the trainer emailed me a job description that they had posted which was for a social media strategist and it was their first ever social media strategist who would do the job It was in Madison and I was living just outside of Milwaukee at the time, which is about an hour and 20 minutes apart. And I said, thanks. This is a cool job. I'll pass it on to somebody else. (laughs) She said, no, I think you should apply for it. (laughs) And uh, I was like, you know, I don't want to work for a student loan servicer and I don't want to work in Madison. So I'm going to pass this on to somebody else. (laughs) And she forwarded my information to the hiring manager who is the vice president of marketing. And uh, he called me and explained to me all the reasons why I should apply for the job. Huh. And that was really, really nice of him. Uh, and he did convince me to apply for it. And I ended up getting the job. I remember I, I did that first phone call with him while I was trying to arrange for an on-campus visit from Bill Clinton on campus to campaign for Obama. Like there was a lot going on in my life. And I was like, why am I talking about this job at a student loan servicer? But I ended up taking it because A, it was doing something that no one had ever done there before that was really exciting to me. B, uh, the the target audience was college students. And that was exciting. I could work with 3 million college students, helping them understand how they could more successfully pay off their student loans. Uh, see when I asked him what success would look like, he told me I would tell him that. So I was really wow. going to kind of build my own thing there. And then I was able to uh, negotiate a pretty nice raise from what I was getting as a director on campus to become a strategist with the with student loan servicer. So you know, I didn't start as the market insights manager, but about every year and a half, I rewrote my job description and uh, changed the title. So I was social media strategist. And then we launched all the social media channels and the strategy and social listening. And then um, I hired somebody as a social media specialist to help me out. Then I became a social media and market research strategist. I was finishing up my PhD and we had no market research function or marketing measurement or assessment function. So I kind of brought all that in because I had that social media specialist to help me. And then I ended up hiring a, um, market research analysts to help wow. me. So then I wrote my own job description as a market insights manager, which coincided with Great Lakes wanting to do a little bit more work into new business development. So this is really kind of where Campus On our starts to come into it. So about three and a half, four years after starting at Great Lakes, I became the market insights manager. I had a team of two or three, depending on how things were slotting out. And we were helping the marketing team with measurement, Uh, we were providing some social listening support to them, but we were also doing market research and market assessments for new business opportunities for Great Lakes. Mm. So everything from uh, employer paid student loan repayment to scholarship services or potential acquisition opportunities, We were doing both traditional market research as well as social listening research for all of that. And um, as part of that role, I got to know the new business development stage gate process really, really well. And I ended up talking to the business development manager about the idea that became Campus Sonar, which was inspired by the response to a conference presentation that my former colleague Mike and I gave at AMA in 2016. And he, the business development manager, encouraged me to submit a business proposal for what would eventually be Campus Sonar. So I started digging into that research in December of 2016, right after AMA, my first presentation to that stage gate process business development council was in February of 2017 and by Memorial Day I was pitching it to the CEO and we were fully funded and ready to launch by August. Wow. And then we launched in October.
1: Wow, that is a that is a remarkable timeline. Um I'm curious what did what did the initial pitch look like? Like, what was, what was the problem you were presenting that existed? And how did you communicate how Campus Sonar, was it even called Campus Sonar yet? Or
0: it didn't have a name, have a name. and okay. I didn't name it. Didn't so name it. we were, we just called it social listening services social for higher listening. ed okay. at that point.
1: And so what was like, how, how were you explaining why Great Lakes should make this investment in developing this new service offering? Like what was the, what was the, the core pitch?
0: Right. The core pitch was that um, trust has been decreasing in higher education as an industry and as an institutions for years. The data was already starting to show that. And the way that people build trust is by listening to and understanding their audiences. Beyond that, the world was changing. So much of word of mouth was happening online. And not only is conversation about colleges um usually a large volume of conversation but it is particularly hard to to find and isolate because of the way colleges are named mm. <laughs> they've got the same name as a city as a famous person as the state as a direction as another college it's it's, it's hard to do well the software required to do it is expensive the talent needed to do it is in low supply and the time it takes is not something that institutions were ready to invest in but we were the right people to do that and i was the right person to lead that effort because all of those things were true when i started working for great lakes imagine trying to do social listening for a company called great lakes
1: seriously seriously
0: (laughs) and all you want to do is find the people who are talking about student loans Uh, And then you're like, well, we also want to know what financial aid professionals think. So find all the conversation about financial aid professionals. Like I had solved these problems before and could do it in different contexts. And the crux of it was there's plenty of software on the market. If they were going to solve this problem themselves, they would have gotten the software and done it. My research had shown that like less than a dozen campuses at that point had bothered to even undertake that. And that people would be willing to work with an expert partner if they could show they were the right ones to do that. I firmly believed it was us. Our research showed that we could make that headway, but it would take two to three years. So I did market studies. Uh, I did interview people. I shared all of that research, but the initial pitch was just like all of that written on a few pages. Um, I didn't have the research yet. The first response was do some audience research to prove that your hunches are are right or disprove them. So then we went back and did the research and came back and pitched again in April, I think. But yeah, that was the story was I've got this unique set of experiences and a unique network that would make me the one who can make this work. And if we scale it, it can go beyond
1: me. So question then, why, why do this at Great Lakes? Like you've got this idea, you feel really passionate about it. Yes, you have a, you've, Grown in your experience um, uh, at at Great Lakes, you have been fortunate enough to build a team there. You, even you know, though it's a small team, you've written your job descriptions. They've been approved, right? You've been able to kind of do what you want um, within the context of this of this larger company. But I guess help me understand: the Did you ever think about just going off and doing it on your own? Was that was that ever in uh, a possibility and If so, how did you end up arriving at the conclusion that, you know what, this is the best place to to build a startup within the context of a larger company?
0: In early 2017, that was absolutely on my mind. I had done enough research to convince myself that the business was a good idea. I had not yet presented it to the Business Development Council. And I had a couple of conversations with my husband of, you know, if I do this through Great Lakes, it's not mine. Yeah. Um, I I don't own Campus art. but if I do it on my own, what does that look like? What does that look like to our ability to pay our bills? What does that look like to our health insurance? What does that look like to to a lot of things? And although like I don't have kids to worry about, I don't have to feed them, uh, I don't have other dependents, my husband has a solid job, at the time I saw myself as fairly risk averse. Hmm. And And I I knew I knew I could start something and that I could probably employ myself. Uh, But I knew that if I did it under the umbrella of Great Lakes, I would have a longer runway and I would be able to be bigger, better, faster. Yeah. And I really felt like if I launched it on my own, it was going to be me. And then maybe if I'm lucky in a couple of years, I'll get an employee because the research was showing that, yes, this was going to be important for higher ed, but in 2017, it was saying two to three years of education and advocacy is going to be needed for folks to be willing to make a purchase decision yeah. on this. And I didn't wanna do it as a side hustle for two to three years. And I didn't wanna not have a steady income for two to three years. So. Also, I'd never started a business before. Yeah. I <laughs> didn't know what I was doing and I knew that I would have support at Great Lakes that I wouldn't otherwise have. So because we, we basically view Campus Sonar as a, a startup with an angel investor that lives within a corporate incubator. And part of being in that corporate incubator means I have access to a top-notch legal team, to an experienced finance team. Uh, those are the folks I talk to the most uh, to enterprise level purchasing to to help out with things. All of that is stuff I would have had. Um, I would have had figured out on my own. So I'm in a position right now where I don't worry about payroll taxes for yeah. my employees or filing our taxes at the end of the year, because the parent company does handle that. And I can focus on the business idea and the operations and attracting talent. So I, I am not in this business to become a millionaire like I won't I am in it to do something that I'm passionate about that helps the industry that is sustainable and to do that the way I was comfortable with and the way I wanted to it just made sense to do it under the Great Lakes umbrella which for the record is now Ascendium Education Group but they've changed names
1: okay and um what was it like like I I, I'm trying to put um trying to imagine myself in in their shoes right You've got Liz, who has worked, she's proven herself, she's been this awesome contributor, she's helped us grow our service offerings, and now she's got this nice big idea that um, makes sense, is going uh, to require an investment. Um, why build a new brand around it, as opposed to it just being one of, again, at that point in time, Great Lakes' new service offerings? How did those conversations transpire?
0: Right. I had to make it very, very clear to them that our target audiences for what became Campus Sonar had no overlap with any of the current clients of Great Lakes. Hmm. Um, so their clients on campus were financial aid and registrar's offices, as well as you know the millions of people who had borrowed student loans. And frankly, I didn't want I didn't want this brand associated with someone that you're paying your student loan back to. Yeah. Either.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Great point. It's, it's very it has
0: nothing to do with it. Uh the ownership may have been the same at the time, but nothing to do with it. And we had So we had a blue sky for branding. Essentially, we were bringing the Great Lakes brand to our target audiences was not going to add brand equity to what we were doing. We were also trying to explain a new concept to higher ed and essentially create our own market, because although we're competing against software um, companies that could be purchased directly by campuses. There was no one doing what we were doing as technology enabled services. So we're creating our own market and we wanted to have something strong that essentially named that market and became synonymous with social listening for higher education. And lastly, like, we wanted to build it from the ground up so that it could be associated with me. Like when you think Liz, you want to think Campus Sonar. Yeah. But I wanted to get it to a place where when you think Campus Sonar, you don't necessarily think Liz. So it's also there that if the company ever decides that the best way for it to go is for another organization to purchase Campus Sonar, it is its own brand. It can be picked up. It can be moved. Yeah. And I love the way the brand played out and I will say I had nothing to do with naming the company. We I delegated that to a group of uh, brainstormers in marketing and explained my vision to them, explained all of these things we just talked about, and they came back to me with a few ideas, one of which was Campus Sonar.
1: Love it, love it. I appreciate you uh fleshing out that that timeline again and and that context because I think that one of one of the things that a lot of folks who are in the education and consulting space and and the the ed tech space more and more you're seeing sort of these like sub brands launch or these sister brands launch and um, it's always I'm always intrigued to to understand what were the conversations sort of like behind closed doors around the decision to either launch a a new brand the decision to sell off part of the company and have uh, the buyer build a new brand around that company. I think about like even in in a very small way, you know the way that higher ed live has sort of been like moved around to 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 different companies who uh who own who own higher ed live and um I think that there are so many pros and cons to taking a a variety of paths but I always like underst- uh, understanding sort of how especially the people that are the movers and shakers within the organizations, the people that were at you know the helm of the idea, how they sort of wrestle through whether to go off, do this on their own, or do it within the constructs of an existing framework uh, where you can tap into a, a large number of resources. So, again, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask folks on this show is to walk us through an oh shit moment. Um, a, a time where the sky was falling and you had felt maybe that you've reached rock bottom or thereabouts uh, and you were starting to second guess, is this thing even worth it? Does this idea, will anything ever come from this? Can you walk us through a moment where you encountered um, that kind of a situation and then talk to us a little bit about how you overcame it?
0: I hope every one of your guests is very clear that there are many of these moments. Uh, (laughs) And It's it's instructive and insightful to look back on them, but gosh, do they stink at the time. (laughs) Um, So the one that stands out to me, it was February of 2019. So that was, for me, I was about two years into building the business. Publicly, it was about a year and a half since it had launched. We were already at eight full-time employees uh, and half of those were our research team. We had three social media analysts and a research manager. Um, And then two of those eight full-time employees had just been hired in Hmm. January. So we had just moved from a team of six to a team of eight and half of us were the research team. And within the span of two weeks, we lost all three of our analysts for a variety of reasons. Uh, So by the end, I think it was by the end of February, maybe early March, our Research team, which was four people, was just the manager, uh, and we're a research company. <laughs> that's that's Not what ideal. we do. Not ideal. Yeah, and I and the two people that we had added in January were existing professional contacts of mine, who I also consider personal friends. So I was also working through this this feeling of I am responsible for the livelihood of people whose families I know. Right. And and that's not I had to get over that. I am not responsible for it. They are responsible and they made the choice to join the company. (laughs) Anyway, it felt terrible. Uh, So Amber, our research manager, suddenly had to do all the work of her team. Uh, We had clients that we had to fulfill promises to. We were still selling new business. And it was it was terrible. So I actually I was trying to figure out, like, how how did I feel through this? Like, how did I feel? What was I thinking? Because it's easy to gloss over it. Um, I was pretty transparent with both my team internally and also with my Twitter followers on like a three week delay, what was happening. Hmm. So to prep for our conversation, today, I actually went back to my Twitter feed <laughs> to see like, what was I saying and how did I feel? Uh, and if you'll indulge me for a dramatic Oh, reason. please, please. I oh, I'm <laughs>
1: excited. Oh, I, can't I know wait.
0: exactly how I felt. Uh, so like in March, I kind of reflected on February and I said, For the second half of February, I felt like I was being punched in the gut every single day. It was one thing after another, and it was hard to miss all the good things happening and not focus on feeling like everything sucked. And when I leave the office at night, because back then I was still commuting in a car, (laughs) I usually spend some time sitting at traffic lights waiting to turn left as I leave the building. As I sat there every night, one thought kept entering my mind. It was, I think this might be the point in an entrepreneur's journey when they make the decision to hang things up. Because hmm. it, it felt like I was up against the wall. Uh, and I, I continued writing, I've heard about this moment on episodes of How I Built This. But I could see over the wall and well beyond it. And while I stopped at these lights, I was also thinking, but there is no way that I'm quitting this. And But it was like I have told everybody publicly and internally, our business is built on our people. We are only as strong as the people who we hire. And for a variety of reasons, we lost almost half of them in a span of two weeks. And it was literally like one person put in their resignation. Three days later, we realized someone else was leaving. I sat down and told the one remaining person, hey, it's gonna be just you. And she came back to me three days later and was like, I just took another job. Wow. <laughs> so She's like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, it's your life. Like, Go live your life. So it was one after the other. Um, and it was rough, but like, we got through it, of course. So thinking back, like things we did, um, well, first of all, it was transparent with the team. Like, yes, this is happening. This is how I see us moving forward. This is how, when it's going to suck for, and this is why it's going to suck for a while. Like, there was one particular day where it was just Amber and I doing client work. Then wow. we had a big project that was due, and she. we had a handoff. She finished the work at 4 a.m. one morning. I got to the office at 5.30 and picked it up, and it was presented to the client later that day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> gosh, talk about burning the midnight oil. Oh, Thankfully my gosh. she's a
0: night owl. So so that I mean, it, it was draining, but looking back, like some things we did to get through. One, even though we were like, Oh, these people are leaving, this is terrible. Um, Amber conducted exit interviews with every single one of them hmm. um and analyzed the feedback for themes that we could use in building our culture, moving forward and making sure we were hiring for best fit because people left us for a variety of reasons, but at the end of the day, like, it was pretty clear this wasn't a good fit yeah. <laughs> for this whole group of people. Um, when, we, when we had all that together, we actually met as a team to go through the feedback and talk about, you know, what about this do we need to implement in hiring practices, moving forward and building our culture, moving forward. And, Amber and I made a very clear choice that we were going to focus on building what she called research team Hmm. (laughs)
1: 2.0.
0: Literally the whole first team was gone. So why not just start something new? And we were really clear with the candidates for the open positions that we were hiring for what they were walking into. There was actually one person we were already interviewing to add to our team at that point. And we told her Uh like, hey, um, so you're going to be the only one. And here's what happened Uh, and here's where we're going moving forward. And when she accepted the job, she said, oh, what an adventure.
1: (laughs) Amazing. Amazing.
0: So we knew she'd be a good fit. And throughout the summer, uh, we filled the roles. And I'm really proud that every single member of research team 2.0 is still with us. And they've powered our growth over the last two years, Right now, uh, we're in the midst of adding a fourth analyst to the team this summer. Um, you know, so we've gone from, we were down to six at one point. We are going to be at 15 people by the end of the year. Um, there are there are more people in the company now that weren't around for the worst month ever <laughs> than those who were. So wow. it's a part of our history that like a small part of us will remember. Um, some of the team members listening to this might even be like, wait, what happened? <laughs> so it is ancient history at this point but i'll i hope that's my greatest oh shit moment yeah um, for the rest of the time
1: yeah i mean and i i would imagine too that hearing that news back to back to back i i can't imagine that you'd think anything else other than wow what does this say about me as a leader what does this say about the culture that i've tried to build oh i'm at the helm it's my people are my responsibility to an extent Mm -hmm. what have i done wrong and i i would imagine that i mean you you it sounds like you were able to at that stoplight realize okay you know what i'm not ready to to get off the horse there's a lot more work that needs to be done here and quickly you know develop a plan of action conduct exit interviews quickly kind of tackle Tackle the negativity and chat very openly about what were some of the points of confusion, whether that was confusion in the role, whether that was friction that exists internally, etc. And it sounds like you very quickly were able to kind of address the issue, but I imagine it was also just incredibly emotionally exhausting. Um, and and yeah, I I, I'm, I I admire your ability to quickly sort of pivot and come up with a plan of what's going to happen now uh the past is the past can't control that but how do we build research team 2.0 and how do we ensure and as you mentioned that we really are hiring the right people for these roles and i think especially as a startup as a as a founder of a startup trying to figure out who you need to hire and exactly what those kind what roles you you need and when you need those roles like that's a really hard thing to do. Um it's it's a skill and some people are really good at it. Some people aren't good at it. So how did you I'm curious how do you now think about hiring? I I've been impressed by your um I think there was like a tweet thread that you published maybe like a few weeks ago now maybe uh maybe a couple months ago and um I was in, and basically you outlined, "Hey, here's who we're looking for." This is what the role is. This is how much, this is the salary range. Th- these are our benefits. And it was something that you just like never see on Twitter, let alone in like higher ed Twitter. Um, and I was so impressed by that. So I, I'm curious, based off of everything that happened back in 2019, based off of where you guys are at today with research team 2.0, how do you think about hiring? And like what what advice do you have for folks who are maybe in a little bit of a similar position uh, that you were a couple years ago and, or in a similar position that you all are in now, which is more, more people coming on board the bus. How do you, how does Liz think about hiring? Are you still responsible for hiring at the end of the day? And and how does that work?
0: I'm not. Oh, there you go.
1: That's the solution. Just delegate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I've always, I have always firmly believed that, um, managers should hire their own people. Hmm. Um, So one thing to kind of like put a bow on the, on the, oh shit moment conversation. Um, What made it even harder was I had, I'd promoted Amber to research manager. I think she'd officially been a supervisor for like less than six months at this point. Um, And, and then she had to just hire her own brand new team and figure it out. So it was also like, no, Amber, this wasn't your fault. (laughs) Uh yeah. and and here is here's how we'll go moving forward. So um she has done the most hiring in our organization because she had to fill a research team 2.0 and we've got small teams overall. But uh we have a an approach to hiring that's been evolving over time. One thing that I a couple of things I think are different for us. We initially uh when we phone screen people, we we don't talk about Like, how will you do these things for the job Hmm. ever? Uh, We talk to them about what their goals are. We talk to them about, um, you know, what gives them energy, what takes away their energy. We talk to them about their past experiences with bosses, like how... um, what bosses would think of them, what they thought of the relationship. There is not a single question in our first phone screen interview that has to do with the work you'll be doing in the job. It is very wow. much a, a culture and motivation fit because we try to make those job descriptions so very clear. Like, this is the job you're going to do um, and hope you like it because we're, we're going to screen people through that can do that job. Um, we're also really participatory as as a whole team in our hiring. So there was a time up until uh, the end of 2019 where every single scenario would be involved in every single hiring process. Wow. Uh, it doesn't matter what team you're interviewing for, you are going to interview with everybody. And that meant there were a few group interviews. Um, and if it made a sense, there might be like a presentation if you're gonna be giving a lot of talks or presentations in your role. Um, but our, our interviews are, fairly conversational and they're broken up. So we, we've got an interview where we just want to understand your story. We've got an interview where we want to know, um, very specific to the job skills. What are you good at? Um, but the interview is just meant to, to bring the the best fit, highest potential folks to the top of the pool. We spend a lot of time building the pool. So that's the Twitter thread that you saw. Uh, We've been really experimenting with that and got a lot of really good results from just complete transparency. So one of the things we did in our last round of hiring, which we're in right now, um both Amber, the research manager, and Beth, the client success manager, are hiring for, for a role on their team. And those teams work together very, very closely. They're essentially our client-facing ops team. Yeah. So Amber wrote a thread about why you should go work for Beth. <laughs> and Beth wrote a thread about why you should go work for Amber. And then, of course, we cross-posted. Um, we just want people to know what they're walking into. And we have found that we are able... The the biggest challenge for us, uh, because we've done a good job of developing a strong culture both internally and externally, we have uh, really good responses to our job postings. And we have to find out, do you want to do this job or do you want to work for Campus Sonar? Hmm. Because if you just want to work for Campus Sonar, but this job isn't a good fit for you, it's not gonna last and it's yeah. not gonna end well. Yeah. You have to want to do this job and be happy to do it at campus sonar. So um making that job description clear and what it is 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 really important to us because we want to retain people. Um uh, we haven't we haven't lost somebody since that February. Um, so I know I know eventually people will move on. Sure. But the- <laughs> That's that's where we've been at. Um, and for full transparency, I got a lot of my original hiring ideas from a book, which is called Who. I was just looking to see if it's on my bookshelf, but it's called Who, and it's about hiring um, for potential and um ability not just someone's ability to perform during an interview that's another thing we're learning right now especially as we hire in an all virtual environment yeah i'm doing we are doing our best to make sure that interviews are not a performance critique
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: that they are a way to get to know somebody understand Their potential is huge. Uh, No one should have to walk into a job and be able to do it on the first day. If that's the case, then they should have been aiming a little bit higher for, for a different job. So all of that plays into it. We still have group interviews. Usually when somebody interviews with Campus Sonar, they are by the end of the process going to talk to at least six people. And then we all debrief at the end. I think that's another thing that I've taken a little bit from my like hiring committee experience in higher ed but it's different in a startup where all of us who talk to the candidate will go through and talk about, can they do this? Can they do this? What are your concerns? Uh, what have we missed? Um, you know, and and that's been really, really helpful. Different team members have different perspectives and have changed my mind about how I think about people, Hmm. but I do not make the final hiring decision on anybody anymore, unless for some reason I would be hiring for a manager. The managers hire their own people.
1: I love that makes a lot of sense. And you know, there's definitely been times where you know, we've I've heard stories and have even experienced this myself a little bit of uh a manager or somebody in the in the C suite hiring somebody that they really connected with, then that person it gets put on a team and the manager of that team and that new hire just don't really click. Um, and it's hard. And or we realize quickly thereafter that the role that we really needed was a little bit different than the role that we hired this person to do. So I think that hiring is just. I mean, people talk about it all the time, and it's one of the hardest things that any person working in in a business that is even remotely responsible for talent acquisition and talent development has to has to wrestle with. Um, and yet, it's a, it's just a very very important thing to attempt to master, to to grow in mastery of. So it sounds like you guys have been through a little bit of a of uh, the ringer in terms of understanding. What works, what doesn't work, and um, I, I admire sort of your your process and uh, the way that you guys have have chosen to to really delegate and empower managers to to build their teams. I think that that will that will serve you all really really well in in, in the years to come. So I, I have a couple of question, final questions for you, Liz, and one of those is about whether or not there's another challenge or opportunity in higher ed or outside of higher ed that you'd like to tackle. You're, obviously, you're fully committed, focused on Campus Sonar right now, um, but any other sort of ideas that you're noodling on that you would be willing to share with us at this juncture, even if this is you know a, a decade down the road? Um, what, are, what are some interesting problems that you'd like to work on?
0: So I don't have a business plan in the wings for what I'm going to do next. I do intend to work on campus on our, for the foreseeable future. Uh, the one thing I spend a lot of time thinking about, it's related to what we just talked about. It's not a business idea per se, but I've become a little obsessed with hiring and management practices. Huh. And, and I think higher ed as well as other, other industries, but I consider myself a higher ed lifer, uh, has a long way to go to make hiring and just like, work-life practices more equitable and livable Hmm. for everybody. Um, So to the extent that I can, I've been addressing this myself in our own practices. That's why we're transparent. That's why uh, we share a lot of the things that we're doing. I know my managers right now who are going through, we did three rounds of hiring in early 2021 for different positions. They've all got thoughts of like, if I could tell the world, like uh, how to go through this process better as an employee, like this, this is what I would say. I know huh. they have those thoughts and we don't have an outlet for that yet. So it, it's something I did go so far as to purchase a domain that oh, I'm not you? doing anything with. Oh. So I am the proud owner of postthesalary.com.
1: the Ooh. Ooh, that's a great domain. It's dangerous. Because everyone into, you
0: know. should just post the fricking salary.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But it's that's what's on my mind. I think I could see myself someday wanting to do more with um just organizational development and business practices. Cause I, I just had a skip level meeting with an employee this morning where I talked about how I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the role of business. Hmm. And campuses are businesses too, but the role of business is not just to create more money for the economy and give people things to invest in. The role of business is to give um members of society a meaningful place to contribute Hmm. and when you think about it that way there is so much more you could do to design a business to to not just get more out of people but to give them more back and i won't be surprised if someday i do something related to that that has higher ed implications this
1: uh this next question um actually comes it just came to mind as I'm thinking about um, conversations I've had with you previously slash conversations I've had with Steve on your team and one of the things i I admire and again I don't know how true this is internally but at least the external perception is you guys do really really great work um, you also seem to have remarkable focus in terms of like what you're doing and so much so that like i think about your your monthly newsletter that you send out that's just always like very comprehensive very well written um and i know that there's other content that you guys are putting out i know that you guys are very active on social media but um you're not like trying to publish hundreds of pieces of content in any given month or you're not out there trying to necessarily like I, i asked steve i think even hey can we do a podcast together and he's like hey would love to, I need to focus for the next quarter on these other things that I'm focused on. So hit me up, you know, next quarter or whatever it was. And I was I was impressed by that because I was like, wow, okay, interesting. Like you are, you've made a decision that you need to focus and you're saying no to this opportunity. And I I, I admired that. So I'm just curious, how do you, especially in startup land, um, focus on and then helping your team carve out like time to do their deep work? And how, how do you sort of like not get, I guess, distracted by all of the noise, um, that's out there saying, okay, launch this new product. Okay. You know, launch a podcast launch, do the, do these 10 other things. Like any advice you have on like how to, how to think a little bit more deeply and, and become more focused on your core objectives and block out the noise.
0: It's a journey. Uh, and it's interesting to to hear that that's an external perspective, because I think we would all agree internally we are on that journey. <laughs> we are. The reason you might hear us say we're focusing now is because it's something we're trying to do better at. Um, we have become more focused, particularly in the last year um and one of those things one of the things that has helped us do that is that we have three core business goals that we are always working towards um they're not a secret i'm happy to share them the first is to grow our client roster the second is to deliver an incredibly strong value proposition in our work and the third is to build brand equity and awareness and If what we're doing doesn't line up with at least one, but ideally two or three uh, of those goals, we have to force ourselves to say no. And it does give us permission to do things too. So about a year ago, this time we were doing our coronavirus higher ed industry briefings. Yeah. And we, before we launched the second one of that and decided to just keep going with it for a few months, there was an internal three page document of like, this is how and why doing this will meet all of these goals. And, and this is when we will stop doing it. So I think that also gave us permission to not keep doing it forever, because there could be a world where we were still doing it and, yeah. and people still enjoyed it. Um, I also think that it, it helps people understand. like, we've also started to work to develop a culture, and again, we're on this journey, uh, we're not done with it yet, that people need to realize there are a lot of things that we could be doing, but here is what is most impactful. And what's most impactful is not always the most fun <laughs> or the most fulfilling, but we've, so for example, we're about to add a fourth business goal, uh, which is financial related and has a lot of efficiency played into it. Mm. So a lot of what we're working on right now is becoming more efficient. And that means that we've got to build processes and templates and, um, you know, we have to, this is something marketing has been working on for a while. You build a great piece of content. Great. Build off of that piece of content for the next six weeks instead of making six more pieces of content. So, I mean, I wrote a book last year. I will not be doing that again. We will be using that book for content for the next two years, but I, I will, I will just flat out say I, we probably look like we have it more together on the outside than we actually do. And we're working to be better at that, but everything comes back to the core business goals. We instituted those goals in uh, September or February. So it was either September, 2018 or 2019 or February, 2020. And we've been working towards them ever since. And there's KPIs. We look at those, if it doesn't fall into that, we shouldn't be doing it. And I am the one that is most likely to try and pull us off track because I get the shiny object syndrome more than my team does. So it's something I have to work on.
1: Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I admire that. And yeah, I think that that's, that's the hardest thing for, for folks to do is how do you use your time well? And there's always the justification of, oh, well, this new thing, this is going to be required in order to help us reach our revenue goals. Or, okay, well, you you want more qualified leads in the pipeline. Great. Awesome. Uh, we need more more marketing collateral. We need more content. Right. And it's, it is, uh, I, I just admire people that have figured out how to sort of like discern what you actually need in order to achieve the goals that you've set and have really honest conversations about, as you said, how long are we going to be doing this? When is this going to stop? How are we going to assess whether or not this segment or this show or this briefing, is a success like what is what are the kPIs that we're gonna use to determine how long we should keep doing something like this and that that is like the people that have mastery over that or at least are have have calluses that they've that they've um, generated while trying to better understand how to how to lead people especially through this decision making those are the people that I think most of us want to follow um, because we all we in lieu of that. We're all just kind of running around in circles trying to figure out what to do how to spend our time and how to move the needle in the most you know impactful ways so um thank you guys for for again the the model that i feel like i feel like you guys uh do a really really good job of just being super transparent exposing sort of the the wins the the challenges um things you're wrestling with and for for those of us who who follow you and who admire the journey that you all have been on i know that it's been at least personally helpful so I appreciate all of that. I know that that's intentional.
0: Thanks. I think the other thing that actually helps us um, develop a little bit more focus and particularly is relevant to startups is um, we have never had the thought that startup life means 50, 60, 70 hours of work a week. Um, things do ebb and flow. And there are absolutely weeks where someone might have to put in 50 hours. And the first year I was working way too much, but we aim for our team members to average no more than 40 to 45 hours a week ever. And when you're not willing to work until eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night, um, and I'm not willing to suggest it, then you've got to find ways to in. So just working more is not an option.
1: Well, Liz, I have one final question for you and then I I will let you go. This has been super helpful and and super insightful. I appreciate you taking time to share your story with us. My last question is just, what's something you wish someone had told you at the start of this journey? Um, Advice you might have, you know, a nice sort of uh, pump up speech or a couple of words uh, that you wish someone had shared with you at the start of this journey, um, there's a fair number of people that will be listening to this that are either current founders in the ed tech or ed consultancy space, and are aspiring founders in the ed tech or ed consultancy space. So, what do you wish someone had told you? Uh,
0: two things. One, uh, I wish someone would have told me as a non-business person, first-time entrepreneur that your financial model is just as important as the business problem that you're solving as your business case. And you can't let one take precedence over the other. Hmm. If necessary, you should surround yourself with expertise if you are stronger in one of those areas than the other. Uh, I think it can be easy to be too focused on finances. It can also be easy to be too focused on your mission and the the problem that you're trying to solve. That's what I wish someone would have told me. I've learned it now, so that's great. Um, Advice I would give to other people, which probably won't surprise you, is that to be successful, particularly in higher ed, but higher ed is all I know, so maybe this is the world at large, that you need to invest in relationships as well as relational communication. So this applies to your target audience of customers, it it applies to your employees, and to peers who that will cheer you on along the way. And particularly those peers, if you're a founder that is just getting started or has been going a few years, find those people. I didn't have that when I started so much, Uh, but now I'm a member of a mastermind group. I'm a member of a small group of agency owners that talk very specifically about those leadership issues. And this year I started working with an executive coach and all of those relationships are key to challenge my thinking, to hold me accountable. But also to reassure me that I'm not veering off the deep end with Mm -hmm. my latest idea or how I think things should be done. Because being the founder or leader of any business, but particularly one that is still just getting going, can be lonely. And you don't really have a boss. (laughs) There's, uh, you might report to a board like I do, but... Uh, there's no one there checking up on you, telling you what to do. You're you're not getting positive reinforcement, nor are you actually getting any sort of constructive feedback unless you build out the networks to do that yourself. And that's been really huge for me the last few years.
1: Love it. I th- am so thankful for your time, Liz, and again, the, the work that you all are doing at Campus Sonar. Um, if folks want to learn more about your offerings and, or your story, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you or someone on your team?
0: Um, our website, campusonar.com, easiest way to find us. I am fairly prolific, as you said, on Twitter. Uh, so easy to find me uh, Twitter on LizGross144, because 144, 144 is a dozen dozen, which is a gross. And ah, follow me. But I like bye. that,
1: I like that. <laughs> wow, okay.
0: My DMs are also open. So easiest way to get in touch.
1: Great. And we'll go ahead and uh, throw in some links to your Twitter and uh, your website in the show notes. So if you are listening to uh, this on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast, just scroll down and you can click right directly to find Liz on Twitter or access the campus on our website. So thank you so much again for your time, Liz. Really, really appreciate it. And keep doing the great work that you're doing. And I'm excited to continue following you along and... In- your journey. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Starter Stories. Starter Stories is brought to you by Enrollify, a learning community for enrollment managers and higher ed marketers. Enrollify was built to empower enrollment marketers with the ideas, the strategies, and the tools that they need to optimize the resources that they do have to generate the results that they need. You can explore our other podcasts or sign up for one of our newsletters, or watch an episode of Frideas, our weekly video segment, at enrollify.org. Oh, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button or leave us a review. And if you like what we're about, share this content with a friend. Finally, if you know a founder in the edtech or education consulting space that you think we should have on this show, please send me an email directly at zach, that's Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org.